to Season 3 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. On this episode of the Casting Light Podcast, we have Mr. Scott Barnes. Welcome, Scott. Hello. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having. I appreciate the call. And I feel like it's almost best if you explain what it is you do, because it's a little bit of a niche and a little bit, I'm, I'm betting that even people that work in film may perhaps haven't heard of it. The old school term would be a board operator, but because of the advancement of the business and the equipment we use, I'm definitely a lighting console programmer for motion pictures, primarily motion pictures. I've done a tiny bit of TV and I've done a tiny, tiny bit of live stuff, but my career is basically revolves around motion pictures, specifically larger motion pictures like effects driven films. In some cases, I know you're controlling lights that are not being seen on screen as lights. They're being seen on screen as an effect or as something else, or there are a bunch of other lights in the world of the film. True. And in some cases, you're controlling lights that appear on camera, like in, say, Iron Man 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much anything that needs to be controlled throughout the motion picture. As my career has progressed, my workload has gotten heavier and heavier. One, because of my experience and the knowledge I've gained over the years, my confidence, obviously, in controlling different things. And then also, I think the business in general has started to rely heavily on the console, whereas before I started in this business, it probably was more of a specialty thing when they needed something specific for an effect. Now, it's pretty much the entire movie, especially stage stuff. Now, when they go on location, it may or may not be that way. It depends on what kind of lighting they're going to be doing. Obviously, like day exterior lighting, they're going to they're not going to need a console programmer for that. But um, sometimes they do need some control on locations uh, like interiors and stuff. Um, but it's not just effects stuff now. It's almost everything, even stuff that lights actors off camera. It's because a few things, I think, The technology has gotten better. There's way more LED now. Uh, There's way more color control. It's not just the LED stuff, though. There's a lot of, like, custom LED stuff now. Um, So there's a lot of RGB and tungsten daylight mixed hybrid type stuff that they're adding in. uh, Companies like Lightyear, Kinoflow, Airy, they're all starting to make even their generic type of Fresnel movie lights are starting to be multicolored LED type fixtures. And then movers in general have gotten brighter and quieter, which gives uh, cinematographers more toys to play with. And the thing about movies is they move so fast. uh, The cinematographers nowadays really like to um, have that ultimate control. They like to be able to change color and things on the fly quickly. Um, So, I think um, in some instances I'm doing theater type work and then some instances I'm doing busking mm-hmm. um, because they want that quick ability to change things. So I think the fact that cinematographers now see what's capable is driving a lot of them now to want that kind of control. And so my position is in more demand now for motion pictures and also um, – it used to be a, a specialty thing where we'd come in for just a few weeks here and there, depending upon what set they're shooting. They need somebody. Now they want us for the whole movie, whether they know they need us or not. And they actually will create work for us to make sure that they keep us on the entire movie. So it's kind of rare to see stuff about your work 
in the trade magazines. Mm -hmm. But but the impression I've gotten from reading some of that stuff is that the relationship between cinematographer and yourself is very different from, let's say, a lighting designer on a theatrical and the programmer, or a lighting designer on an event and, and, and the programmer. Mm -hmm. And there almost seems to be still this bit of, I don't quite know what they're doing over there. Like, I saw one article that was about how you were the best because you made plots of where the lights were. So tell me a little bit about how you work with them and how you interact with them. The way the business is structured as far as our department is we have, uh, you have obviously the cinematographer who's in charge of the photography of the movie. He's got three different departments that he deals with. Uh, he deals with camera department. So we'll have an assistant camera that is responsible for camera work. And then he has camera operators and so forth. And that's the camera department. He also deals with the grip department which he has a key grip for. Uh, grips basically are in charge of moving the camera, blocking and cutting the light, depending upon where you're shooting. Uh, in America, that's the way it is. In Europe, it's a little different, but primarily grips are responsible for rigging things like cameras and lights and cutting light. And then of course you have the lighting department and the head of the lighting department is the chief lighting technician with a CLT, also known as the gaffer. Um, he's my boss. And so uh, he's who I primarily get called for work from. Beneath him is uh, an assistant CLT uh, or best boy, as most people hear. There's also a best boy grip in the grip department. But the best boy is basically responsible for manpower and equipment, uh, inventory and all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, getting the gear that the gaffer needs and getting the manpower needed. Uh, when it comes to hiring, uh, usually it's the gaffer that calls me. Occasionally I get called by a cinematographer as well. It's gotten to the point where cinematographers now have a certain trust in in particular console programmers that they really rely on, almost like they rely on a good Steadicam operator in the camera field. They also want someone behind the console that will give them the kind of speed and skill that they need to uh, light the scene. Not to cut out the gaffer. I mean, the gaffer is still important to us because that is our department head. But there's several cinematographers out there now in the world that do really, really feel like they almost want uh, a good console programmer before they hire anybody else. Um, and that's also dependent upon what they're shooting. You know, if they're doing a big, huge effects sci-fi type film, they might feel that way. Or if they're doing maybe a musical or something that's going to be lighting heavy as far as cues and effects and stuff. But there's obviously movies where they probably won't need a console programmer, and then we wouldn't get called for something like that. So the gaffers who I usually get called from and who I typically work for and also who I get my direction from, that also splits up with the cinematographer as well. There's some gaffers that really like to have that control, and also there's gaffers that are very fascinated by what we do from a technical standpoint and um, want to be involved in the process of giving us – the proper vocabulary as to what they require of us as far as chases or cues or any kind of particular lighting scenario um, on the console. Um, and then there's gaffers that are very old school and come from a background where they don't control a lot of lights typically, but they do need a console programmer. In those scenarios, sometimes that gaffer kind of steps aside and lets us speak directly to the cinematographer or the cinematographer may just feel more comfortable talking to us without a middleman. Um, and that's more probably more of like a lighting designer, lighting director type of relationship, I think. Um, the gaffer is sort of the uh, additional person that could possibly be in that conversation as well, if that makes any sense. It is interesting that the term that ended up getting used for your position is moving light programmer when it's this more like lighting director style position that you're describing. 
You're right. And there's a lot of people in our local um, that feel that way too. And there's a lot going on as far as within the, within the union, within IA to make that more of a standard in our contract. Um, you got to understand, I mean, theatrical and concert lighting, that is such a lighting driven type of uh, business. You know, the show is the lighting usually. Um, so they treat the lighting guys, the the LD and the designer in a, in a, in a manner that we treat our cinematographer. Um, whereas this business you know, came from old school Hollywood, you know, the golden age of Hollywood, where it was arc lights and it was the old school guys. It was all no, no digital, no, hardly any analog. It was just old school lighting down and dirty, big, thick cable and big, heavy, disgusting lights. And, and that's how the business kind of grew. And, uh, it probably wasn't until concert lighting became more digital. I think whole hawk two had a big impact on our business and started seeing the potential in the 80s and early 90s uh, for more control when things became more digital uh, and lighting became more accessible as far as that. But uh, yeah, we come from such an old school. Hollywood is so, you know, the standards of Hollywood are so old. It's it's ridiculous, but it's changing. It's slowly but surely changing. And uh, I'd like to think that hopefully within the next 10 years or less, um, some big changes might come as far as our particular area. It's interesting that you mentioned the hog two being the great equalizer, because of course, it's the thing that meant you didn't have to call a specific company and say, I want your lights, I want your console, I want you to come do your to do my show. It's put the control in the hands of the production. So how did this all get started? Well, for me, I got introduced to hog two on the on the Grinch. So you were already working in film. Uh, I was working in film. I started in film uh, in 91 in Texas. Uh, I'm from Dallas originally. And uh, pretty much right out of high school, I started uh, learning uh, equipment at a place called Victor Duncan Incorporated, um, which was uh, located at Las Colinas Studios at the time. Um, and I uh, slowly learned equipment and uh, also played around with some little two-scene consoles, but never really got into consoles until I got to L.A., which was in 96. Uh, I moved to L.A. in 96 with my wife and uh, immediately got into the business out here. I had a friend that was in the business, and it was very busy, uh, and it was a good time to get into the local. And so that's kind of how I got in in 96. I was uh, – I have an, uh, an art background, really. I, I'm not um, professionally trained in art. It's just something I've been doing for years and years, logo designs and uh, graphic design art and stuff like that. And uh, I took about a year and a half or two when I was still in Texas. I left the lighting business, the motion picture business out there for a brief time. Uh, I was invited by Cinemark's owner. The CEO of Cinemark uh, invited me to come work for him and help design movie theaters. It was a very weird moment in my life. I might have been 20 at the time. And uh, I came in and he basically was just looking, this is Leroy Mitchell, and he was looking for an in-house uh, graphic artist that he could, that didn't have to pay a lot. <laughs> and so he brought me in and uh, the design department that designs the theaters sort of um, adopted me and brought me into their department and I helped do renderings and interior uh, renderings and designs for them for about a year and a half or two. And then I really missed being in the motion picture business and I left. I just didn't want to be stuck in a nine to five job in a cubicle 
in an office somewhere. I wanted to be where I really wanted to be, which is back in motion pictures. So um, I left in 95 and moved out in uh, 96. We moved out to LA and uh, and I got into the business immediately. I think because of some of the work I did with Cinemark, this one particular best boy that I was working for early when I first got out here in 96, saw some of the things I did on the computer and thought I would probably be a good person to do plots. And uh, so I just started doing some plots for him. And that kind of led me to a console. One thing led to another. I just started doing plotting and console work and it just kept getting calls for it. It just kind of worked out. That was back when uh, expressions were pretty much the workhorse of the business. And there really wasn't a full-time position for a console programmer of any kind or even a board op at the time. It was more of a specialty kind of thing. Or like just one of the dudes would do it. That was it too. It depended upon, it also, it had everything to do with how complex the rig was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it was super simple, then yeah, this the guy on the crew would go over there and slide some stuff up and down. But if they needed more stuff like queuing and crossfades and maybe some effect type lighting, then they would bring someone in to run the expression that could do that kind of stuff. I just basically uh, was thrown into it and I just ran with it. I just saw the potential. I met people like Alan Rowe and Michael Nevitt. And uh, these people really kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities out there. Grinch was a big turning point. That's when I first got my hands on a Hog 2. We had a Hog 2 on that entire movie. What we had was we had a Hog 2 for one particular stage, the Whoville stage, which was all 16 of the big Whoville town buildings and stuff. And we had several thousand channels of DMX. That's why we needed a, a larger size console than an expression. So we brought the Hog 2 in. And then Michael Nevitt was hired as the interactive lighting designer. And he brought in Alan Rowe to run the Hog 2. And Alan and Michael showed me almost everything I needed to know about the Hog 2 and sold me on it. So that's when I first got my hands on a Hog 2. And Grinch was just a big turning point. And we started, I just started seeing the potential. And then from there, I just started running with it. I started going online and training and learning and calling people and uh, taking the big steps of just ordering a Hog 2 whenever I did other shows and just sort of started making it my normal console. And then the Hog 3 came out and I continued with that. What's interesting about the Hawk 3 was I got it just before I was offered Lemony Snicket. And uh, the the funny story about Lemony Snicket was uh, I was on some other show working somewhere and I heard rumors about some movie coming into town. They were uh, in early prep where they were like figuring out equipment for it. And apparently there was going to be a set where they were going to have somewhere around 10,000 channels of dimmers or something like that. And because everybody back then was so used to using expressions, they were going to order like 10 expressions and use, <laughs> and use and use just a whole bunch of expressions for it. So I knew one of the guys working on it and I sort of called him up and I and I knew the even though the Hawk 3 had its problems when it come to dimmers, it was fine. I mean, when it I didn't do anything complex with it early on in its infancy. So I uh I was pretty confident with it, and I knew that it was expandable with the DP2000, so I knew I could give them the amount of control they needed just with one desk. And so I called them up and I told them that. They just weren't aware of that such a desk could even exist. They didn't think that that was possible. And so when I told them that I had that ability, they immediately hired me. And so I, I that that was a big turning point, too, just like the Grinch was a turning point. Um, Let me snake was a big turning point, too, because I think it opened the eyes – even though it was a Hawk 3 and Hawk 3 had a bad name going for itself at the time, it did open a lot of eyes up in, the, in our business uh, seeing that a console of that kind could control so much uh, with just one person. 
and that was a big turning point too. So I stuck it out with Hog 3. It's interesting that that was such a revelation. You know, it's interesting that Hog 3 was the first time that it was like, well, wait, this is possible? And it's like, well, yeah, well, concerts adopted this stuff in the 80s. No, I know. Totally. And I was saying that at that time, and even still I say it, is that <laughs> uh, live entertainment has paved the way for what we do in motion pictures, and we're so far behind, and we still kind of are. When it comes to education, I think we're better now. Most people know now what's out there. MA2s are very popular. Hogs are very popular. And there's still, obviously, all the all the live guys have opened our eyes to what a 676 can do in live TV. You know, what's interesting is during my three days, Beaky was my go-to guy, and uh, he was the one that helped me get the, um, the fixture profiles I needed to do Lemony Snicket, that large 10,000 channel. Uh, I needed specific types of custom profiles to make that show work. And he and his team were really instrumental in getting that going for me. And that's one reason why the three came, came through on that show and was such a big success. So I realize that every film is very, very different. But I'd like to pull like a couple of signature ones that you've done and look at how you assembled them, how the day-to-day operations worked, and how you were involved. You did Cowboys and Aliens, right? I did. I know that one had a bunch of bad boys, and they were being used uh, not just to light scenes, but also as sort of on-screen, almost scenic elements. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that one. I'm very proud of that one, even though the movie didn't do so well. Doesn't mean it didn't look good. No, no, no. No, it looks... Maddie Libatique, who's a friend of mine. Great cinematographer. Um, I got called for that. Uh, that's a crew that I normally work with, too. Uh, that crew, that lighting, uh, that gaffer and that cinematographer, we did Iron Man 2. We did Iron Man 1 together. Um, I've known that gaffer. Uh, his name's Michael Bauman. Um, he's actually uh, one of the owners of Light Gear now as well, which is an LED company in Hollywood. I've known Mike for a long time. Mike is actually probably the one guy who he's the one that put me on a console the first time. Oh, uh, okay. And so uh, he called me when I was doing, I think I was doing Thor. I was in the middle or towards the end of doing the first Thor. And he called me up and he said, Hey, I want to put movers in a helicopter on the, on the next one. I knew what the next one was. It was Cowboys and aliens, but I didn't know anything about it. One of the, obviously the key moments in the movie was the aliens attacking the Western town and John Favreau, who I've done a lot of movies with, he is very big on doing in-camera effects. He wants to try and do as much in-camera effects as possible. Um, he does do a lot of CG. Obviously, Jungle Book was nothing but CG just about. But <laughs> um, he still really likes doing as much as he can at that time. He was very much into doing everything in camera. And I think the visual effects supervisor also was uh, instrumental about trying to do some sort of lighting scenario for that um, because of all the pyro that we were going to have they wanted the lights to travel through the smoke and interact with the smoke of the pyro makes a big difference i mean we saw all those sharpies on those ships in the force awakens it's being done a lot now i think in star trek one of the star trek movies they hung lights on moving trusses as well so i got the call for that and originally the thought was they were going to try and do it in a helicopter and so um i was stuck on thor but they did some tests and my friend josh thatcher who's another uh, console programmer in Hollywood, um, he went and did the helicopter test. He was fortunate enough to do, and he uh, built a small compact hog PC system and sat in the co-pilot seat of the helicopter and programmed two bad boys and I think two Alpha 1500 beams is the lights they looked at. And they basically just opened up the side doors of the helicopter, stuck truss through it, had them stick out on each end, each side of the helicopter, 
strapped them down, and then they stuck a a, um, a generator, small little putt putt generator, in the helicopter and shot the exhaust out the door to power up the movers. And the test went well. I think the the problem with the helicopter was it scared the horses to to, to be Jesus, oh. and uh, and it didn't allow them to get low enough uh, without affecting you know, all the, the town, all the atmosphere and uh, dirt and horses and everything, the livestock and whatnot. So they wanted to get down deeper. And so they contacted a company called SpiderCam, which is a very popular company that moves cameras on a wire, very much like cable cam and those kind of places, SkyCam. So it's a, it's a specially wire rig that they put up that they can move cameras around and stuff, but they had never done lights before. And so that we were asked, they were asked to see if they could meet the challenge of actually flying lights. And obviously they did, and with great success. So we used SpiderCam, and they rigged three wire rigs in the town, two main runs, we called them the A and B run, going down the main street of the town. And then there's a cross street that had another wire rung. And they were rigged by cranes. They had cranes that were about a thousand feet apart with a truss hanging off the cranes, and then wire rigs hanging suspended from the trusses all the way across the full, like, 800 or 1,000 feet. And then they hung a special sled built with truss and platform that had the generators on them and then also the movers. And we used bad boys primarily. All three rigs had bad boys, at least two bad boys on them because they're the brightest mover that we could find, uh, even though they're heavy. The color is really good and the beam is beautiful. So um, it was a great light. It's Unfortunately, the it doesn't move real fast. Uh, the motors are a little slow compared to an Alpha 1500, but that seemed to be okay. We, we were able to make that work. Um, so we had those three sleds. And then we also had condors at each of the four corners of the Western Town. Behind the Western Town, we had condors that had uh, mover rigs in them as well to simulate more of that type of feel, but in more from coming from a distance. And then the sleds were, you know, the eye candy that flew across. And the sleds were really great. They, we flew them around 45 miles an hour and um, they could come all the way to the ground and they could go as high as I think, I think around 40 feet or so, but we kept them around 25 or 30 feet high. And um, I think they said they could fly them as much as 88 miles an hour if they wanted to. Um, wow. but, we ne- but we never went that fast. They just knew just from the engineering standpoint, they knew they could go faster if we wanted to, but we never did. And we used uh, WDMX to run everything. I think we had six or seven universes of DMX, each sled on a separate universe. So we had a transmitter for each of them. And then we had a transmitter for the town as well, for different parts of the town doing practicals and fire effects, um, and things like that. Oh, and then we also had lasers uh, on those sleds. That were by um, Lightwave uh, out of Pittsburgh, I believe they are. They provided lasers. And the biggest laser we had was a 38 watt on one sled. And then we had like a 26 watt on the other sled. And then we had several, I think they were like 10 watts or something, the smaller ones. We had quite a few of those. And those lasers were controlled by me as well. And then, oh, uh, really? yeah, we also had these lights called um, Aluma panels by a company called T8. They're uh, 28 T8 fluorescent tubes in one light fixture. Uh, it's a nice, big, broad, soft fluorescent light uh, for moonlight. It gives a nice moonlight glow. And we put those in there, and I controlled those as well so they could you could dim them. They were dimmable. You could kill certain tubes if you wanted to bring the amount of tubes down. 
I think Mike's big thing was to mix the tubes, to put half of them daylight tubes, like 5,500 Kelvin, and the other half like 2,900 Kelvin. So you could play with the color slightly if you wanted to. I've uh, seen that. It's very cool. Yeah. It just gives you enough you know, movement as far as you know, making it a little bit more of a warmer daylight or a cooler daylight. Um, but we ran everything wireless just because of all the horses and everything. We didn't want to run any DMX across the dirt. So we kept everything wireless because there was a lot of a lot of livestock running around in those dirt roads. So what was a day like? The town part of it was simple. You know, a couple build a few fire effects, throw them on all the practicals, let them go all night long. And then uh, the programming of the sleds, that in the condors was where my primary work was done. I would keep each sled on a different slider. So I had a main cue list for everything in the town, and then I had cue lists that were specific to just the sleds, and then also some cue lists that were specific just to the condors, because the condors acted as sleds as well, but they were stationary sleds. So those were mostly just like fly-out sweeps, basically, that you would do on the house, you know, in a concert. You would basically just start them in a down position off and then have them come on and sweep them outward and then fade out and then reset. And so that's all those were basically doing. And I'm guessing from what you've described that nobody else on site had any idea of the sort of back office stuff you were doing on the console. It was just like, we needed to do this. No. And the way I did it was I had uh, one full-size hog in the uh, back part of the saloon. There was like sort of backstage, I guess you could call it. There was a little room back there that we set up sort of my server control and that's where all the data was coming from. And all that data went up uh, to the rooftop where the transmitters were located on the roof of that particular quarter section of the town uh, where the saloon was. And then, uh, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't the saloon. It was, uh, I think it was a house or something. The saloon was catty corner to me. But anyways, above that was where all the transmitters were. And then the data was coming from that console. And then I networked the town. Uh, we built troughs in the dirt and ran Cat 6 across and then I would have some switches located in the other three sections of the town that I could tap into. And then what I had is I had a second console on a cart that I could roll around outside anywhere I wanted. And because it wasn't, it was just a client, I could log it off, unplug it, roll it to a different part, and the town would still be running from the main console. The server console would still be running it. And that, that allowed me to move around and get a good vantage point of the sleds and see what I was doing as far as programming. Um, and that's kind of how I laid out the console. I'm really big in this business on networking consoles. Um, that was one of my poorer ways of doing it. Now, you know, when I'm on stage, I do it a lot differently uh, than that. So I'll get to that in a second, I guess. Well, before you do that, um, you know, you're talking about some of the equipment that you're using. I know that rentals on on these kinds of projects work a little bit differently than the way they work in, say, theater or concerts. Um, and if some of the stuff comes from you, right? Yeah, almost all of it comes. As far as desk, I have two full-size fours that I use, and that all comes from me, yeah. And any additional stuff I get from wherever. Other guys I know, or I just tell the equipment house what I need, and they'll find it. So you said when you're on stage, it's a whole different story. So what's a, what's an example of uh, you working on stage? So the way I've been doing these large stage shows now, and I've been doing it since Iron Man 1 was when I was testing this, and then it became sort of the norm right around Iron Man 2 and Thor. The way I set it up is I set up a server on every stage. So if, if I'm doing like, take Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, I just finished that sequel, and uh, we had we had six stages 
And before I used like laptop servers and DPAKs, but now what I have is I have rack hogs. And so um, I use a rack hog as a server. And so for each stage that we're going to shoot on, I keep um, a cabinet with a server, a hog server, basically. And so it's the rack hog with a monitor and a mouse, and that's about it. And all the data comes from that server, and that's what's running every stage. So each stage has its own, and each stage is dedicated its own port number on the network. So if I'm in stage 5, that's going to be port 6605. Stage 7 will be port 6607, and so forth. And what that gives me, uh, that, that does a couple of things. There's a lot of benefits to it, actually. I also tap the server into the studio's infrastructure, and they allocate a block uh, in my own, basically, VLAN that I can control each server from whatever stage I'm on. <clears throat> so every th- each server is basically against the wall, and it's next to their switch box, and it's tapped into their network. And then each device obviously has its own IP range. I work with the IT guys of the studio, and we set up a block of IPs that are only dedicated to hog and nothing else. And what I'm able to do then is when I have my consoles basically are clients, uh, everything is saved and controlled from the servers and the client is the console. And so that allows me to move my console from stage to stage and not have to worry about loading a show or saving a show or anything like that. I just go to the stage and I just tap into the network and I'm up and running. The other benefit is if I'm on stage five and they want to see stage six or if they're one of the, the director wants just to go over there and see it and walk through it, I don't have to go over there with another console. I can do it from stage five. So I can log off of stage five and it still stays running. I can log on to stage six and the hog logs off and on very quickly. Um, so I can log on to stage six, bring up whatever they want, save it, and then I can log off of, off of six. They can go over there whenever they want. It'll be up and running. And I can be back on five doing what I need to do. So the other benefit, and these are some of the things I tell production when they ask me why I need it. Um, it's gotten to the point where they don't ask me anymore now. But early on, they were asking me why they, we need all this. Well, I don't understand. We were able to do all these shows without all this That's stuff exactly for right. all these years. What's the That's problem? exactly right. What's interesting is it doesn't take long for them to realize the benefits. And then from there, it's just like, oh, yeah, you're bringing that stuff, right? You're bringing that network stuff? Yeah, yeah. Another thing is that we'll shoot like half a day on one stage and then we'll actually do a company move to another stage. In the olden days, <laughs> or the way we did it before I network stuff, is you would have to either have two consoles, which you can still do. Obviously, that's still a normal thing to have is two consoles going. But uh, now what I can do is I can be on the stage that we start on and I can have the lights that we're going to already up and running before I even get there. So I don't have to hurry up and log off, close up, shut down roll over there and then waiting on me with no lights. Um, they don't have to wait on me. Basically it just eliminates any kind of waiting. Um, because what they do is they usually roll over, they got to roll camera over there and they got to roll all their carts over there and they got to walk over there. Then they'll basically walk around and talk about what they're going to shoot, how they're going to shoot it. Then they'll do a rehearsal. So while they're doing all that stuff, I can take my time coming over there and not have to hurry up because they've already got the lights on they need. And then, then the, and then the flip side of that is I can leave the stage I'm leaving I can leave those lights on and turn them off later. And then there's other little benefits. Like sometimes they leave a camera behind. They do some insert stuff. So they'll leave like one camera guy behind. They'll say, hey, we got to shoot this telephone while everybody else moves over. And I'm like, no problem. I'll just leave this stuff on and I'll come over there and I'll turn it off later whenever you're done. So it's not a big deal. So there's there's been other little benefits like that to networking. 
you know, you're providing so much of what's happening visually on screen. Mm-hmm. How how much is it? How much of that is sort of left to you to decide how it looks, how fast it moves, what color it is, if you're going to roll in some minus green or not? That is more sort of like an LD and designer type of relationship where you're going to do whatever you're asked to do, but you're also going to have some input as to it's almost not really me telling them what they should do. It's me reminding them what's possible. It's more like you do remember I have minus screen control, right? I can mute and they're like, oh, yeah, why don't we try that? Um, I think it's more of a feel of who you're working with. If it's someone I'm not worked with very often or never worked with, um, I'm going to pace myself a little bit and see when the right moments are to input stuff like that. If I know deep down that it's going to be something that they need to see, then I, I will step in and say, hey, let me just show you one thing real quick. But I won't persist. Now, there are there are cinematographers and, and, and gaffers that do kind of rely on me to make those kind of decisions and show them some things. And uh, and I think I've I've gained that ability by all the shows I've done with them over the years. I think they've it's just a trust that I've earned that um, ability to throw my two cents in and be a little bit more creative uh, when it comes to that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, Guardians was very interesting because um, it was a crew I've never worked with before. I was totally referred simply because I've done so many Marvel films. Uh, they didn't have anyone local in Atlanta that could do those size shows. And so they suggested bringing me out and doing that. So it was a gaffer I've never worked with. It was a cameraman from England that I've never worked with. So it was all new faces. But I think my reputation, just because of all the Marvel films I'd done, they knew that I was bringing something to them that they probably had a lot of faith in. So um, my relationship with those guys didn't take long uh, for me to earn that ability. I did a lot of stuff as far as colors and stuff that they never even came to me and said change. They just went with it. So I think that's just experience just from doing a lot of those movies. You kind of know what kind of colors they want and you know what they're looking for. You throw it in there. You wait for someone to give you some criticism about it. If they don't, great. If they do, I'll make whatever changes they want. And that's kind of how that's been. So what's another good example? I'm assuming you can't talk about the second Guardians of the Galaxy. but I can a little bit. I can't give you plot information. I can tell you about the, some of the technical and cool things we did. Okay. I can tell you that Guardians 2, probably the biggest lighting control movie I've ever done, uh, which is saying a lot because Iron Man 2 was really good size. We probably had about 1,000 movers on Iron Man 2 uh, over over the whole movie. There was, you know, the biggest rig we had on Iron Man 2 was probably about, I think we had one uh, rock and roll rig where you had like about 280 movers. Um, for the For the expo. Yeah, for the Expo. The Expo was broken up into uh, – I'll talk about Guardians later. Iron Man 2 had uh, the Expo scene, which is broken up into three different sections. There was uh, – the exterior section had two different spots, and then the interior part, uh, which was the actual stage, was what I c- controlled. Um, that was such a large rig for me and Josh Thatcher, who did the media part of it, that we weren't able to really even handle the exterior part. So we brought in additional programmers for that which also had some movers for them to do. Um, but the rock and roll rig was such a large thing. We decided to just handle that on our own and and uh, and not focus on the exterior stuff, leave that to somebody else. And the rig wasn't going to go in until probably a week before. So we did a lot of ESP vision work on that one. We built the rig and vision and uh, 
and did about three weeks. And what we did is we took the vision computers and the consoles to wherever they were shooting at the time and set up a vision camp for us to work in so that while they were shooting, I think they were shooting the racetrack scene outside. So when they had moments that they could break away, they being the director and, uh, and Maddie, the cinematographer and the gaffer, Mike, uh, when they had moments that they could break away, they would come in and see what we were doing and show them as well as some of the Marvel executives too. Um, just to give them an idea of what we're doing. So Vision was a big uh, tool that we used for that and uh, gained a lot of additional programming time uh, from working in Vision. And then when we got to the actual rig, a week before they shot it, we had a full week of uh, just flushing out the rig and then uh, going through our cues we'd set up in Vision and tweaking them. And then we did uh, final touches of programming over the holiday. I think it was July 4th weekend. And then we shot it. So Vision was a big player in that so we used that that was a so that was a good size movie and that and now like i said that was a we had a lot of movers on that one and we had not a lot of led at that time because it wasn't as big as it is now LEDs definitely huge now back then it was just kind of coming in as far as movies go technology wise yeah what was the switch over for leds what was it that happened I think uh, two companies really pushed the well maybe three if you count KinoFlow, i guess you could count KinoFlow, but Lightyear was one of the bigger companies that pushed LED technology in movies. They are sort of a the custom fab type LED where you get the ribbon and you get the controllers from them and you build whatever you want with their lighting. A, a lot like you could do, most people can do with anything now. There's a lot of other sources out there for um, LED ribbon type of stuff, uh, pixel ribbon and just RGB ribbon and stuff like that. But they brought in additional ribbon, just all tungsten or all daylight or a hybrid mix of the two, which became very popular. Just like we would mix the tubes on the Luma panel to be daylight and tungsten. Uh, one of the big things we love in this business is having daylight tungsten hybrid LED as well. So we can mix that perfect white color that we really, really love. So Light Air was a big implementer as far as LED. And then Airy really kind of stepped it up with their new line of, of, of fixtures that they've been uh, playing with for the last several years now. And SkyPanel being the biggest one now, uh, which has really sort of taken over the business. Everybody wants sky panels. They're just all over the place. And they're great light. They're fun to control, too, because I wish that I could control a color force the way it can control a sky panel or a VLX or something that else that is the RGBW for RGB amber type of fixture. They made it where their software allows you to control it almost like two different fixtures so that you have full white control and then you have full RGBW control for party colors. And then there's a channel that crosses between the two. So um, I can mix a 3200 with a little minus green, or I can mix a 5600 with a little magenta or whatever and make that perfect white using that type of vocabulary too. I mean, literally the cinematographer can say, give me 5600 and give me minus 10 on the magenta or something. And then they still have though the luxury of picking party colors. So if they want Congo blue or if they want purple or if they want amber or whatever, I can mix that on the other half of the fixture basically and cross between them using that special channel that they've implemented. And like white bumps are really easy because you can literally just use that one channel now. I don't have to program a cue of white and a cue with a blue and do a, an effect between the two. 
I can make the light be 3200 and then also blue and I can use that one channel and just chase between that channel between those two things it's it's pretty amazing um, and it's just a super popular right? it's very bright and soft and that's a great control concept I was reading an area spec sheet the other day and I didn't understand what they meant by that and now I get it and it's yeah. a, it's a great idea it really is. It's fantastic. And coming from my point of view, you know, when we use things like, you know, color forces are another very popular light. And because you can use them for a lot of everything, they're eye candy, or you can throw them in a box and make them a soft light. You can pixel map them and do all kinds of crazy stuff. But because it's an RGB amber fixture, one of the first things, you know, cinematographers want you to do is go, hey, can you make, uh, can you make that 3200? And I'm like, oh, well, there's not really a 3200 setting for the light. I have to just throw a meter under it and find that color and make a, a palette for it, which is how we do it. But with Airy, they can talk to me that way and I can give them that immediately. So that definitely answered the question about LEDs. But you're about to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. We just wrapped that in June. And uh, I can't tell you about the movie, obviously, but I can tell you from a control standpoint, it was uh, it was probably one of the bigger, if not biggest shows I've done. That was my eighth Marvel movie. I've, uh, I'm about to start Avengers, um, which will be nine and ten because it's two movies. And I've done some other Marvel films that weren't Marvel produced, like Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and stuff. So I've done quite a few of those movies. Guardians was one of the largest lighting uh, shows that I've ever done. And we didn't really have a whole lot of movers and stuff. We, we had just a whole lot of control. Um, a lot of multi-channel control lights, a lot of LED. Um, we did have some movers. There wasn't really any performance type lighting. Uh, no, no, like stages with rock and roll type rigs. But we did use... Uh, movers for effects um, and there was a lot of LED we did a lot of VER video panel stuff which I also controlled because we were using it as interactive light so for that reason I controlled it to uh, allow me to implement it with the cues with the other lights that I was having to control as well and tie it all together so can you explain interactive light? Interactive light would be lighting that hits the set or the actors that will um, be simulated by a visual effect of some sort. Like interactive light from a, a car passing by, uh, hitting an actor, or interactive light of a spaceship flying over or by them. Interactive light of an explosion or some sort of supernatural type of lighting, uh, cosmic type of feel around them. Uh, we did a lot of really interesting things on Guardians like that. We had one rig where we had a ship that they built on a on a, a convention center because the stages were all full. Uh, this is in Atlanta. And uh, we had one set where we wrapped the entire set with this uh, with the video panels and video curtains. And then they put um, like a shower curtain material that they bought tons of that they hung in front of it about a foot out from the panels to soften it. To, so you couldn't see the video diodes. You could just see this projection basically from the video panels onto the shower curtain. And then we just made this organic type of content around the ship. So they're like in this bubble of organic, supernatural, cosmic type of feel. And it was really cool. But it, that's that's everything that lit the entire set was that. we We didn't have any additional lighting hitting actors or anything. We used only the LED video curtain. So where does that content come from? Visual effects made it. We, uh, I mixed some stuff up. I used an inbox for that, which is my preferred media server. And uh, I did have with my own content that I own, I mixed some stuff up from the look at. They gave me a, a general idea with uh, concept artwork and just the director telling me kind of what the feel and the colors needed to be. Um, so we played around with that with my stuff. 
And then they felt like they still just needed a little bit something different. So they had, they had visual effects actually whip up something for me to add in. So, and, and even that wasn't right. So I either have a, I had to manipulate with some effects, some color effects and some softening effects and tiling effects to make it a little bit more like what they wanted. But I did use content from the visual effects artists. So, but uh, we had a lot of stuff like that. And then we used uh, the ROE hybrid panels. That was a new to me. I've never used those before. It's a 15 millimeter LED panel with these single spotty LEDs that are sort of the size of a puck light that are embedded into it. And they're spaced out probably like a foot or two apart. They call it a hybrid because it's basically two video panels in one. You have the the fine 15 millimeter and then you have these big spotty LEDs that you can run media through too. And then you can separate the raster map so that you can run media across just the 15 mil or just the spot or both, uh, depending upon how you set up the raster map. We use the 15 mil basically as ambient movement of light, like clouds going by the spaceships and stuff. And then the spotty stuff came into play when we needed effect lighting, like strobe type stuff or gunfire or explosions, uh, which threw a much uh, harder and spottier light source onto the subject. But they were very, very cool panels. They, they, they worked out really well. Okay. And then we had a couple crazy digi ribbon signs that they custom built. I had one sign that was 72 universes of DMX, and then I had another particular set piece that was like 42 universes of DMX, of digi ribbon. The one set piece was interesting. They used these uh, things called neo rings. Have you ever heard of a neo ring? I have not. It's basically the size of um, two inches in diameter or something like that. And it's a ring with 12 individual RGB pixels around it. And the drivers for them are built into the emitters. And so um, in our business, we have a department, we have the, we have the rigging department that rigs all the rigs. And then we have the set lighting department, which are the shooting crew lighting guys, which I work with those guys. Uh, we also have a third department called the fixtures department. And the fixtures department build lights. So they build, and because of the LED craze now, they're mostly building LED stuff. But they build stuff for the art department and they build stuff for the lighting crew, uh, depending upon what's required of them. But the neo rings were interesting because I was able to do like a, a, a chase effect of the ring but then also I, I had like 540 of them. So I had to actually chase the rings on top of chasing the emitters. So I had like a ring effect going around the ring as if it was spinning. And then I had another effect going across all the rings as if they were chasing themselves. So we were doing some really unique stuff with that, with that too. And that was 42 universes, was like 18,000 channels just for this one set piece that was the size of probably about six feet or seven feet long. It was really short. Well, man, that's some of the cool things I was doing on Guardians. Technology-wise, um, I had an, an interesting episode with Laura Frank where she was talking about pre-visualization levels that are above and beyond where anyone is working in the business right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sort of like in the world where like video game technology is, is coming and meeting with a production. I know that previs is a huge deal for film, but lighting previs and film previs don't really play together. And do you see stuff like that happening? I, I do. I think uh, there is a bridge that definitely needs to be worked on to, to, to fill that gap um, because previs is huge in the motion picture business, but it's previs of the, the movie. It's not previs of the lighting. Um, when we need previs for lighting purposes, it's usually for um, scenes that require performance type lighting and you need to you know show them like I did on Iron Man 2. 
uh, and using vision. I'm a big believer that uh, the technology will get to a point where we can provide previs of lighting accurately for cinematographers. Um, I'm not sure what the time frame is for that, but um, I hope it's you know within my lifetime. I'm a beta tester for Victor for Vectorworks as well. I have been working lately steadily on testing the new vision that's implemented into Vectorworks, and I've been pushing very hard to improve vision literally like the last several weeks. Vision 2017 just came out like yesterday or two days ago, and uh, it's it's in its early stages right now of them just trying to get it working with Vectorworks in a way that people would prefer rather than as two separate platforms more combine a little bit and the workflow and the pipeline between the two uh, has gotten a little better. And I think the main goal is to get Vision basically completely bundled into Vectorworks. It seems like the key for your side of it is that one of these things has to learn to play with what they're using for cinema. Yes. And and that's where I hope to add a lot into that uh, mix, uh, being a tester for them. So I'm, I'm going to pace myself because I don't want to push too hard now. There's so many other things they need to get finished for vision in Vectorworks uh, before I can really kind of push them. I, uh, I have invited some Vectorworks people to come visit the set and see what it is we do and how I use Vectorworks uh, and how I, uh, f- how I see the future uh, as far as uh, lighting for movies using Vectorworks and vision. And so hopefully I can open their eyes a little bit as to some possibilities there. I think one thing that would be really cool is, uh, you know, virtual reality is becoming such a big popular thing right now. I think uh, not even just, just setting aside the whole cinema part, just in general, previs I think would be pretty cool to be able to run something like Vision with a VR helmet and see in a 3D world, you know, your rig come to life, you know, rather than project it on a, on a screen or have it on a, a video monitor, uh, but to literally be able to look around in 3D with it. I, I could think of some scenarios where that would be really handy for a lot of people who have maybe multiple stages and they want to be able to turn their head and see this stage and turn their head and see that stage. Um, I think the VR technology is getting to a point where we should see that probably pretty soon in previs lighting. I think uh, as far as previs for lighting, it's it's going to take some time because right now previs really is all about aerial lighting and, and seeing the beams or seeing the faces of the LEDs as far as pixel mapping and some sort of, you know, uh, interesting looks as far as that goes. Cinema lighting is about lighting a subject. So it's not literally about lighting atmosphere. It's about lighting a person's face. So we deal with a lot of soft lights and bounce lights and stuff like that. And that kind of uh, rendering is going to require a better type of system, a more powerful type of system, because you're dealing with um, radiosity and stuff like that. You're dealing with uh, light hitting other things and creating light as well. And in that scenario, you're not dealing with just the right settings for the light itself. You have to deal with the right settings for the atmosphere around you. Everything. Everything, yes. The textures of the floor and the color of the paint, the glossiness, the matte finish, you know, all that stuff plays in the, into that. And uh, that's how visual effects in movies are even mm-hmm. created is because they're mastering that lighting and that render quality that is the same as you would get in reality. But getting that in real time for a previs lighting package where that your console is actually controlling something and giving you that realistic 
lighting scenario, that's going to take some time. It's going to uh, happen, that, though. I'm sure it's going it. to happen. It's just <laughs> I think I think software wise, we're there. It's just about hardware. But as far as right now, when I introduce the uh, the possibility of using a tool like Vision uh, for a movie, I explain to them up front that this is what I can and can't do. Um, I'm not going to give you uh, um, the the lighting scenario that you would want on the on the on the actor's face, um, but I can show you beams and I can show you positions of lights and show you colors of lights that uh, and that are fairly accurate. Um, and then, you know, you know as, as as they improve it over time, then I'll introduce more to them. But for now, it's minimal amount of information. You mentioned that you have uh, you have children. Um, I do. I mean, I know that the film can be a very funny business to be in um, when it comes to having anything outside of the job. So, like, how does that work for you and what else do you like to do? Uh, it's, it's, it's been tough actually. Um, the, the business has branched away from Hollywood. Um, my home is just outside of Los Angeles and I've been here, uh, since 96. I, all my children were born in California and, uh, they are now, I have one in college. I have a girl in college and my boy is in high school now. He's a freshman. And then my, uh, youngest girl is just starting middle school. So they're all getting big now. For the majority of my career, I've been here working in Hollywood, you know, on at places like Universal and Sony and Warner Brothers and Paramount and fantastic studios. And now because of the tax incentives, a lot of the business has gone outside of L.A. And Marvel is sort of setting their roots in Atlanta. And um, there's a lot of stuff now as far as big, large movies, which is what I get called to do. Um, a lot of that's outside of L.A. So I've been out of town a lot which has been rough on the kids. Um, we try to make the best of it. Uh, during the summer times, usually they'll come and stay with me uh, and we'll try to make sort of a mini vacation out of it. But during school time, uh, it can be difficult, especially now that they're older and doing things with friends and soccer and basketball and stuff. It's They can't get away, so they have to be home to do all those things. And so I have to do a lot of flying back and forth to try and meet some of those schedules and see some of the things they're doing as they're growing up. But I do miss a lot. Um, and it sucks, but, uh, yeah, those are my three kids. I love them to death. Been married. Oh geez. What is this? 2016. So coming up on 23 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, she's a stay at home mom. She takes care of the kids and PTA and all the stuff within the neighborhood. And she's very busy woman. I'm very blessed. You know, I got, I got a great family and it's, it's been a rough past five years with me going out of town, but we've we've sort of made the best of it. It's it's working out okay. Hopefully it will end and maybe I'll get more work in LA. We'll see. So do you have anything else you want to hit us with? I definitely want to know where can people go to see your work. You know, I'd love to hear the sort of hit list from the last, say, five years. Mostly Marvel. I mean, it's been a lot of Marvel stuff. Uh, I did... I just finished Guardians, and then before that, I uh, had done uh, Civil War, the Captain America Civil War. I did that one. Um, I did do Conjuring 2 in between those movies. I had done Conjuring 2. That was in L.A., which was nice. That was at Warner Brothers. That was a fun – I like doing horror movies. I don't do enough of those. Um, the horror movies are fun just because there's all kinds of crazy gags you got to do, little funny flicker lights and crossfades, you know, spooky things. So – I did The Ring 2 as well years ago, and that was kind of fun. Um, I wouldn't mind doing more horror movies. I did, you know, another thing I forgot to mention, we were talking about some of the things I worked on. I did work on Dreamgirls, and that was a 
another really great moment in my career as well. I met Jules and Peggy, and then Harry Sangmeister was on the on the vert for that. Yep. And that was a man, that was a blast. So they were on the entire movie. Of course, they did all the performance lighting. And what was very cool is the um, their schedule was loaded to the point that there was one performance they just couldn't do just because they were so full on the other. So I got to do that one and Jules came and designed it for me and helped me do it. And then I programmed it and it was just, it was a smaller one, but it was fun just being able to work with him uh, up close like that. And, uh, and I got to know them pretty well. It was pretty nice. And Harry was great. And that was my first look at what a vert could do. And he showed me a lot of cool things with the vert. Um, I mean, Harry is one of the originals. Yeah. He's, he's the master. How did that work with Jules and Peggy and Harry and you? What you know? What were you all doing? They were their own department. Um, we so we had the typical lighting department where we had Gaffer, Best Boy, and then myself, and then some guys on the crew. And then they had uh, what was called the uh, performance lighting department, where it was Jules and Peggy. They brought in uh, this guy Richard from New York as their master electrician that they'd worked with a bunch. I think he since then had moved to LA and is now working in LA more. And then they brought Harry on as their LD. And basically, they w- worked on their own. They Jules and Peggy would sit down and prep and work out with the director and the choreographer as far as what the performances that they were going to light and how they would do it. And the cinematographer, which was Tobias, he would have some say as far as how they would shoot it and so forth. And I think they did about five performances uh, for that movie. It was interesting. Uh, I didn't really work with them during that except for the one performance that they couldn't do that I worked that I did for them. Um, but I did have a couple, um, let's see, like the ballroom scene where we had the curtain LED. It wasn't really LED. It was like bulbs just throughout the entire set. Uh, we we separated that all on dimmers and we put that on me. But Peggy wanted me to cue it with them and Harry. So there were moments like that where they would give me some stuff to control. Uh, and then I would fall in with Peggy and get my cues from her. Uh, but but. All the other times, I was basically just controlling movie lights, uh, move movie lights, and they would be doing the performance lighting. So Harry would be on his own. I would I would have my console set up near Harry just so that we could all be together uh, as far as front of house type situations. But not all of them were in theaters. Um, some of them were on stage, like sound stages. So um, we were separated a little bit for those. But it was fascinating. I, mean, I learned a lot on that um, because I have never worked with uh, someone like that. You know, Peggy and Jules. Peggy basically drove the ship, and Jules was on set, sort of as a, a liaison to Peggy. He would be by camera, and Peggy would be set up uh, in in the booth or the med sh- med shift booth with Harry. So when they would come up with something on the fly, they would talk to Jules about it, and then he would he would radio into Peggy about whether or not they could do it real quick or not, and then they would do it. But for the most part, um, that's kind of how that whole thing worked. Jules was there just as the visionary person, as the designer, and Peggy was really the one that was uh, queuing everything and uh, setting everything up. And then I also did, um, this was another cool moment. I did, uh, sometime after Dream Girls, I got called to do a Tony Bennett special for NBC. It was kind of like a live event, but we didn't have a real audience. Um, we shot in a theater, on a stage, uh, in a theater, and it was a big moving light rig, and it was Rob Marshall directing, and it was um, Dion Beebe shooting. He was a cinematographer. Nice. And, and then it was me on the console, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It was about uh, nine performances over a period of like three or four days. 
that we did with different artists, you know, like Christina Aguilera and Stevie Wonder and I think Michael Buble and some other people. That was a lot of fun because that's the closest I've come to actually doing something more Broadway-esque type of lighting with Rob. And Rob was a lot of fun to work with. And so I got, I gained a lot of experience doing that too. I used vision for that as well. So how did that work? So so you were acting as sort of lighting designer slash lighting director? Uh, well, we had a gaffer also. And I guess he and Dion would – Dion was more like the lighting designer on that, I would say. I think I after doing Chicago, Dion sort of – Dion and Rob had worked together on this, some, a few things. And I think after doing Chicago, when this thing came up, uh, Rob and Dion both sort of agreed that together they could probably do the lighting design to, on their own. And they just needed someone to actually do the control part of it. So I was just the console programmer for that. I was just sort of an LD kind of person, and uh, and I got a lot of my a lot of my direction from Rob and Dion. I see. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, and it was fun. It was uh, like I said, it was a whole different kind of experience for me. So what's the rest of the where where we can see stuff you've done? We got through the Marvel films. Yeah, the Marvel films. Uh, I know you said Spider Man. Then some Spider-Man. I've done some other pretty exciting. Movies. I did uh, the Grinch was a great movie that I, I mean, you see every Christmas time now. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Ron Howard is one of the best to work with. Uh, he's he's an absolute gem. He's so great and laid back and easy to work with. Um, that was a great movie. Right. That's high up on my list of you know career moments. Just visually, there's just there was just so much to see. It was a, it was a, a very uh, cliche type of Hollywood epic stage Hollywood movie. It was, you know, lots of hairdressers and lots of makeup artists and lots of visual effects and big, huge organic shaped sets that were carved out of styrofoam. And, um, you know, it was just a fascinating movie to work on. From a control standpoint, it was pretty basic. It wasn't very exciting lighting wise, but uh, it was definitely a a grandiose movie to work on. All right. I don't know what else. The Lemony Snicket was pretty interesting. That was uh, with Chivo. That was a, he's a three-time Academy Award winner now. Oh, shall we leave it there? Sure. All right. Scott, thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you and have a good evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading and have a good show. Next episode, come to you.